The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org give. Please stand for a reading from Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 37. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning. I add my welcome to Brian's. My name is Chad Middlebrooks. I'm one of the other pastors here, and it's great to be together as we open God's Word on this Lord's Day. And we are continuing in our series in Luke's Gospel, and as was mentioned last week, Luke's narrative continues Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. Uh, where he will ultimately lay down his life on the cross to redeem sinners. And last week, we learned of Jesus' work of healing ten lepers. But only one of those ten lepers that was healed actually returned back, and it was an unlikely leper out of the ten. It was a Samaritan, an outcast. And he returns to praise God in, in gratitude for the power that he had received in being healed by the Messiah. And so in our passage this morning that you just heard read, Jesus continues more poignantly, to teach about the central message, the central theme of his earthly ministry, which is the kingdom of God. And he does so by answering two burning questions, one that is lobbied from the Pharisees and the other that is given by his own disciples. So with that, let's pray, and then we will dive into this text together. Let's pray together. O ancient of days, we ask this morning that this living word would be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. 
Come Holy Spirit, tend to your word and bring it into our hearts that we might be transformed, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, this passage, as you just heard read, is an extremely rich passage. It's also a very challenging passage. And there are a lot of truths packed into these several verses for us to glean this morning. And so in the famous words of Jerry Reed from Smokey and the Bandit, we have a long way to go and a short time to get there. So we're going to dive right in. So look at your outline in the back there. You see here, we're going to study this passage by way of these two points. We're going to answer, or excuse me, Jesus is going to answer these two questions. And he's going to do so first as we see the already nature of the kingdom of God as the Pharisees question Jesus, when will the kingdom come? In verses 20 and 21. And then next, we'll learn of the not yet nature of the kingdom of God as his disciples ask the question, in essence, how will the kingdom of God come? In the remainder of our text. Now, from the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus has been proclaiming that the kingdom of God has come because the king is here. If we go back to Luke chapter 8, Luke tells us as he summarizes Jesus' earthly ministry in this way. He came proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And elsewhere, Jesus himself says in Mark chapter 1, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus has also declared the kingdom through the many parables that he has taught and will continue to teach in his earthly ministry, which illustrate the nature and the outworking of the kingdom of God. And so everything that Jesus has been teaching has been serving to illuminate the reality that God's kingdom has arrived because the king's here. And here in verse 20, the Pharisees ask this question, when will the kingdom arrive? Now, to be fair, we don't know exactly if this question is coming from a place of genuine curiosity or maybe it's coming from a place of antagonism. But either way, Jesus takes this opportunity to school the Pharisees in the, in the already nature reality of the kingdom. Now, the first thing Jesus warns, he warns them of two things here in these first two verses. First thing he warns them, he says, don't expect the kingdom to match your assumptions. Now, the Jewish Pharisees were very intrigued by the coming kingdom of God because they believed that when the Messiah arrived, that it marked the end of their enemy's dominance over them. And see, in their worldview... The Messiah was this conquering king, this warrior that was coming to establish a new geopolitical state in order to free Israel from dominance, from their enemies. And so they were looking for cosmic signs that would precede the entrance of this warrior that would come, the Messiah, and bring and usher in this new state. And so they thought that they would be able to say, oh, there's the kingdom, because there's the warrior who's coming to free us from oppression. And because the Pharisees were careful in their study of the scriptures and they had expertise in the phenomenon, they actually thought that they would be the ones who would see the coming kingdom first before anyone else. But Jesus very plainly here tells the Pharisees that the kingdom is not coming with signs to be observed in the way that earthly kingdoms come. But then furthermore, he actually warns them of another thing. He says, don't miss the king that is in your midst. And it's interesting, I think, that the Pharisees asked this question just after Jesus has healed these two lepers. He's already healed the sick. He's healed the lame and the blind. He's fed 5,000. 
He's calmed the storms, and the Pharisees have either seen with their own eyes or heard the stories of Jesus' power, and yet they say, when is the kingdom coming? And the Pharisees should have learned from this Samaritan leper who was cleansed by the power of the king, and yet they missed it. Throughout Jesus' ministry, not only has he declared the coming kingdom in his word, but he's actually demonstrated it in his power, in his works. Everything that Jesus has done, everything that he's exhibited has revealed that in him, the kingdom of God has arrived. But again, the blind Pharisees could not see it. They couldn't understand and see these realities. And even asking the question, when will the kingdom come, revealed their spiritual blindness. The life and the power of the kingdom was embodied right before their eyes in the person of Christ. But being driven by false assumptions, they were more concerned with looking for signs and they missed the king. You might remember in John chapter 5, Jesus actually rebukes the Pharisees because he says, you're diligent in your study of the scriptures and you think you have eternal life. But yet you don't see that everything in the scriptures that you study is pointing to me. And therefore you refuse to come to me to receive eternal life. Now, if you're here this morning and you're a professing believer, let me ask us this question. Are we busying ourselves, concerning ourselves with the activities and the things of the kingdom of God, but yet we're ignoring the king? And as we make assumptions about Christ and his kingdom, which we often do, do we actually weigh those assumptions against the truth of God's word to see if they're grounded in truth or whether those assumptions are just our own ideas or the ideas of the culture around us? See, the kingdom of God is already, as it's been inaugurated by the coming king, Jesus Christ. And while we don't have Jesus physically present in our midst like the Pharisees did, we do have Jesus present with us because we have the power of the Holy Spirit who is not only with us as believers in Christ, but is inside of us indwelling our hearts. We are united to Christ. And Jesus prayed this reality in John 17 in his high priestly prayer. He said, the glory that you have given me, I have given them and that, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you and in me. That is that union language that he's speaking of there. That they may become perfectly one, he says. Life in Christ is never lived outside the presence of Christ. And so does the reality of God's real presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, does that impact how we daily think, how we speak, and how we act? as we depend upon the Spirit for His guidance and His wisdom to lead us while we wait for our King to return. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, are your assumptions about who God is, is that keeping you from drawing near to this King for eternal life? If so, I challenge you to consider that in the Scriptures we have a King who tells us that he's a king full of compassion, full of forgiveness, full of grace and mercy and truth. And he's more gracious than we could ever imagine. And his kingdom is one of complete power and majesty and authority and righteousness. 
And he's inviting you into that kingdom to be joined to him as king. The kingdom has already arrived in part because the king has come. But next, Jesus reveals the not yet nature of the kingdom as his disciples question how this kingdom will come. And since calling his disciples to follow him, Jesus has been teaching the disciples of what life as a disciple looks like in his kingdom. And he offers four lessons, four truths here for his disciples and for us to learn this morning related to his return. Notice there in verse 22 through 24, Jesus tells his disciples that the kingdom's arrival will be unmistakable. So do not be distracted. Now Jesus says here, he says, you're going to desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you won't see it. Now that seems like a reference to Daniel chapter 7, which we don't have time to go into the details of. But he's saying you're going to want to see the king in all his glory, but you're not going to see it yet. But you know, we're no different than the disciples, are we? We too have a longing to experience life in the presence of our resurrected Savior, free from sin and brokenness in all his glory, don't we? Now I don't know the circumstances and situations of your life. But I do know some of the circumstances of you in this room because you've shared them with me. And you're walking through some very difficult and challenging things. And I imagine that at points in your life, we've all, when we face with suffering and trial, we've had the thought, Lord, if you would just give me one day, one day free from the curse of sin, free from the brokenness of this world and my own heart, and I could have your glory and all its unfiltered power and presence, then I could handle what I'm walking through right now and anything else you would give me. And Jesus knows that tension, that longing of our hearts. And so he tells us that when we're growing impatient, waiting on our king to return, he says, don't be deceived, don't be distracted by peripheral things that don't matter because I am coming. In verse 24, he ultimately says, oh, you'll know exactly when I come back. Kids, I wonder, I know you've probably had this experience. You've been lying, you're lying in your bed. It's a, there's a thunderstorm outside and you're trying to go to sleep and all of a sudden, lightning strikes. And it lights up your room as if somebody flipped on the switch. It's so bright. And Jesus says, you're not gonna miss when I return. It's going to be so unmistakable and so bright that it'll be as the lightning is striking from one end of the earth to the other. Everyone will know that I have come back. And so he's calling us, his disciples, to remain watchful for that day, not giving in to prognosticators who tell us when Jesus will come back, as many often do. Because if the Son of Man and his humanity doesn't know the day and time, I think it's safe to say no one else does. Second, Jesus teaches that suffering will come before the kingdom is fully ushered in. Now, though our fleshly tendency is to uh, avoid suffering at all cost and to try to remove ourselves from any kind of discomfort, Jesus warns us that suffering is the pathway and it is the norm for us to be with him. Remember what Peter says in 1 Peter 4, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials, when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange is happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings 
that you may also rejoice and be glad when the glory is revealed. Jesus says here that he had to come and he had to be rejected by this generation and suffer on the cross in order for the consummation of the kingdom to later come. And this was prophesied in Isaiah 53 where we're told that the Son of Man would be rejected and despised and would be offered up on the cross in order to save for the iniquities of his people. But I think this is where we often feel the tension of the not yet of God's kingdom most acutely because Jesus is asking us to concern ourselves less with trying to insulate our lives, trying to avoid suffering, and for us to be more concerned with concerning ourselves with kingdom life as he has laid out in the scriptures. And as we go about our life seeking to follow Christ, we're not to be shocked when we face trials and sufferings of various kinds because we are called to share in Christ's sufferings. But the only way we can share in Christ's sufferings is if we see Christ as both the sovereign high king who is over all things and the one who decrees all things that come to pass, but also the sympathetic high priest who empathizes with his people, who has gone through suffering far worse than you and I ever will, and he knows what we're going through. See, one of the true defining marks of a true child of God is sharing in the sufferings of Christ in this lifetime. So the question becomes, do I trust God and his perfect intentions behind everything that I'm called to walk through? And do I rest and rely upon the sufficiency of his grace and the power of his spirit that I might persevere and faithfully endure until the day that either I die or the day that he returns, whichever comes first? See, the pathway to glory with Christ necessarily travels in this life through suffering. Next, Jesus, if you look there in verses 26 through 33, teaches us that preoccupation with life's activities causes kingdom indifference. Jesus is pleading with his disciples and pleading with us this morning, please prepare yourself for my return. Please get ready. And he compares his second coming to the flood of Noah and Lot's escape from Sodom, where both were days of judgment that God brought upon the people of the earth. And during Noah and Lot's days, people were eating and drinking and marrying and building and planting and doing all these things, Jesus says. But what does he mean by that? Well, the people were living their lives with a business-as-usual mentality. Now, it's not that there's anything wrong with eating and drinking and building and planting and marrying. None of those things are wrong. But what he's saying is that the problem was is that people were so preoccupied with these daily activities that they gave no thought beyond the mundane of daily life. Therefore, they neglected the God who created them and the God who desired a relationship with them. And see, the truth is, Every one of us has to busy ourselves with daily life and activities, don't we? And if we look at our lives from the outside, they look pretty similar in many ways. But only you and the Lord and any of those that you trust that let into your life that you confess your struggles with know how you, what ends you're proving your daily activities towards, whether that's for the glory of God or whether that's for selfish ambition and pursuing pleasures of your own. And so we must be honest with ourselves and with others about our struggle to make our daily lives and all the activities that we do throughout our day 
count for the glory of God. See, on that day, when Christ does return, it's going to become abundantly clear. If we're clinging to the things of this world, and that's what has our attention and our affections, or if we're clinging to Christ alone through faith. So what gets most attention in your day? And what is the motivation behind those things that you do? Is it as Paul calls us to in 1 Corinthians 10? That whether you're eating or drinking, do everything to the glory of God. Is that our call and intention with how we're living our daily lives? Are we busying ourselves with the right things so that our hearts don't become indifferent to Christ and his return? See, Jesus wants us to let go of our firm grip that we have on the world's possessions so that we surrender to him and we had consume ourselves with his kingdom priorities. See, the people of Noah's day, they thought he was absolutely crazy for building an ark in a place where there was no floodplain. But God warned him to build it. And so he heeded God's warning and obeyed. And Noah was spared. Likewise, Lot lived among a very evil and promiscuous people who were spiritually blind. And so God told him to leave Sodom and he did and his life was spared. But the people remained in their sinful lifestyles, going about the motions of daily life unprepared for God's coming judgment. And they were utterly destroyed. In verse 30, Jesus speaks of the suddenness of his return, which points to the necessity of guarding against us being unprepared and indifferent. He says, there's not going to be any time for you to run back in the house and grab something you forgot. Because it's going to happen like that when I return. And he uses Lot's wife as an example. She was so wrapped up in her possessions that she had to turn around and go back. That when the judgment came, she wasn't ready. And she paid for it with her life. She placed the material over the spiritual. So the point is, when Christ returns, there is no time to change course. Because the door is shut if you have not surrendered your life unto the glory of God and His purposes. Jesus is instructing His disciples and us this morning about the reality of a heart that is not truly transformed and is not surrendered and submitted to Him as King. It will be revealed for what it really is. So therefore, as Christians, this means we can actually be honest about our struggle with keeping kingdom priorities in our lives. We need one another because it's so easy for us to get fixated on the things around us in this world. We need community. Not just saying hi on Sunday morning as we gather to worship, but that we invite people into the depths of our lives so that we can encourage one another. Because the kingdom of God and His sanctifying work in our lives cannot be seen by others if we're simply living in isolation apart from one another. We must live among one another in such a way that we are spurred on to perseverance. And as the writer of Hebrews says, that we don't give up meeting together and confessing our sins to one another, praying with one another and worshiping until the day that Christ does return. And in verse 32, Jesus says, any attempts to find life and satisfaction in the things of this world, whether it's in power or wealth, or relationships, or sex, or money, or material possessions, it's a surefire way to lose your life 
as you will be eternally separated from God. But when we do fail to set our affections on Christ and we set them down on the things of this world, if we repent and seek forgiveness, then we can surrender our lives and our wills unto Christ, then we'll have eternal life, he says, and we'll have actually true blessings forevermore, far greater than what we are setting our eyes on in this life. So what do your current pursuits say about what you're valuing most this morning? The only right response to Christ's impending return is to lay them down and to surrender to him and his word. Last thing that Jesus reveals about the not yet nature of the kingdom is that proximity to those who are saved is not sufficient for one's own salvation. Look at the last four verses, 34 through 37. Jesus describes two opposite fates of man at the return and the judgment of the Son of Man. He says that one group is going to be destined for eternal damnation and judgment because they are outside of Christ. But the other group will be destined for deliverance and joining with Christ forevermore. He says there's going to be two people lying in bed. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women are grinding wheat out in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. And what he's revealing is that outward appearances count for nothing because God sees right through to the human heart and all the intentions and motivations of our heart. Take Lot's wife, for example. She was part of the most godly family in Sodom. She was directly connected to righteous Abraham. But yet proximity to godliness is not enough. Kids, teenagers, let me speak to you for a moment. Many of you have had the privilege of growing up in a Christian home and you have a mom and a dad who love Jesus and who have told you about Jesus and pointed you to him. And you need to count that as a great blessing from God. But that fact alone is not enough to make you right before a holy God. You must initiate and personally see your sin and the ugliness of it and see the Savior who has come to ransom you from that sin and bow your life in faith to Christ. Or maybe you're married here this morning and maybe you're married to the most godly man or woman on the face of the earth, but you're as far from God as you could be. Your husband or your wife cannot help you on that day of judgment. See, it's not proximity to faith that matters. It's possession of faith in Christ that matters. You don't want to be on the wrong side of God's judgment when Christ returns. Look at the picture that Jesus paints in this last verse in verse 37. He says, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. That's a dark picture. And there's a lot of ink that's been spilled in debate of what Jesus actually means here. But I think at a, a minimum, it seems that Christ is saying very clearly that his return and his judgment is unmistakable. Just like if you've ever been hunting and you are hunting an animal and you shoot it, but you can't find that animal. Just wait a little bit. You'll see the vultures flying above. And once you see the vultures, death is down below. Which side are you on this morning? There's only two sides. The side of self-reliance, trusting in the things of this world to make you happy and fulfilled, or the side of Christ, the King who has come and who is coming again to conquer and bring the consummation of his kingdom in fullness and all of his glory. 
What good is it to succeed and profit in this life, but yet forfeit your soul for all eternity? Are you ready for Christ to return? If you're not, may today be that day that you make preparations and surrender your life unto Christ alone. And if you are a believer in Christ, take comfort that even though God doesn't promise us immunity from suffering and death in this life, he does promise us abiding life with him for all eternity when we hide ourselves in him, safe from that coming judgment when he returns. Let our priorities be kingdom priorities and let the world see that we are pursuing something far greater than what this world can offer. A king who is coming. Let's pray. Fathers, we prepare now to feast at your table. We ask that you would nourish and strengthen us so that we're compelled to carry out your kingdom priorities and purposes, busying and readying ourselves for your gracious return. Father, we do thank you for the promise and the confidence that our king is reigning now and he is returning one day. Lord, would you do this for our good in Christ's name? Amen.